the answer was affirmative. We can uh, get an agent to basically use a set of tools that we give it. In this case, the browsing commands like searching. I would say I ex- expect AI to be able to do better uh, a better job than humans at most jobs that humans do now in five years or so. Talk RL. Talk RL podcast is all reinforcement learning all the time. Featuring brilliant guests, both research and applied. Join the conversation on Twitter at TalkRL Podcast. I'm your host, Robin Chohan. John Schulman is a co-founder of OpenAI and a researcher and engineer at OpenAI. He is well known for major contributions to the field of reinforcement learning, including the TRPO algorithm, that's Trust Region Policy Optimization, GAE, Generalized Advantage Estimation, uh, those are from his UC Berkeley dissertation, and TRPO's Descendant Proximal Policy Optimization, or PPO. His current focus at OpenAI is on RL from human feedback. John, welcome to the show, and thanks so much for being here. Thanks a lot for having me. You were literally one of the first people I thought of when I started the show three years back. Thanks, I'm honored. It means a lot uh, to me to have you you here today. I definitely remember your nuts and bolts of deep RL video back in the day and watching that multiple times and, and gaining a lot from that. So I think you helped uh, probably a generation of, of RL practitioners back then. By the way, there's going to be a, um, a reboot of the nuts and bolts presentation. I got invited to give a talk at uh, NeurIPS this year on it. So I have to, I'll have to revamp the, uh, the guidelines and everything. So that'll be fun. Oh, that's awesome. Can't wait for that. So you were clearly one of the earlier pioneers in, in deep RL. So how did you choose to move your focus to RL from human feedback? And why is that an important problem? Why is that important to you? After GBD3 was trained, I was blown away by how smart it was. And I realized the next frontier was figuring out how to make language models actually useful. I'm still really interested in RL, but solving RL benchmarks isn't the end of the story. Uh, to use your RL algorithm, you need a reward function. But where does the reward function come from? In uh, RL benchmarks, you usually just code up the reward function. But if you're not in a simulator environment, that doesn't work. So uh, what we have to do in any kind of real world use case is have humans look at what the AI did and decide if it was good or bad. So how, how exactly you define this reward becomes a really challenging and important problem, especially as the tasks get harder to evaluate. Another angle on this is that language models are very smart, but it's hard to get them to do anything useful. A big re- big part of that is they're, they're not necessarily trying to do what you want. They're just trying to imitate the training corpus. So that means um, there's a big opportunity to improve them a lot by just giving them the right objective. That's what we can do by applying RL to these, uh, to these language models uh, using human feedback to define the reward. Is using human feedback harder or very different in some way than using a synthetic reward? Uh, there are a lot of com- new complications. Like um, now, you ha- you have to collect a data set dynamically. You don't, yeah. So you're always in the in the business of building data sets of uh, of pre- human preferences. Often, the data quality there uh, matters more than various algorithmic details. And you also have to you have to think a lot about exactly how you're giving the task to the human trainers and various other things that you wouldn't have thought about if you just had a programmatic reward function. Does the difference between human raters or the noisiness of the reward signal cause any problems? I would say the noise, uh, definitely you need to be below some uh, threshold of noise uh, to learn anything. I think uh, in general, if you have a large noisy data set, that can uh, be as good as a smaller clean data set. So actually noise isn't the thing that worries me the most. It's more that there are sometimes uh, consistent biases that people have. Um, for example, in, in settings like uh, question answering, 
or uh, settings where you have a model writing some some text, uh, often people pr- prefer longer answers. You end up with uh, these very verbose answers if you're not careful with the instructions. That is, I mean, you can also instruct people the, the raters to uh, to reward uh, brevity, but without yeah, if you're not careful, you can uh, incentivize the wrong kinds of behaviors. So let's move to some of your recent work. First up is WebGPT, browser-assisted question answering with human feedback. That's uh, Nakano et al. with yourself as a co-author in 2021. Can you tell us what what is the main idea um, of this paper? What is WebGPT? In WebGPT, we uh, basically took our language models and we hooked them up to a to a web browser so they could uh, retrieve information from the web and they can write an answer by summarizing the relevant pages from the web. So that way, if you're asking a question about current events or a question that requires some detailed scientific or technical knowledge, this AI can go out and uh, look up the answer and with detailed citations to its sources. So I would say there's kind of uh, two interesting points to this. Uh, one is uh, we were exploring whether you could turn language models into a kind of agent. There's a lot of data on the web of different texts that people have written, but there's not a lot of data that shows how to actually do some uh, multi-step process. So it's not that clear a priori whether you can get a language model to actually carry out some iterative process. We just have a lot of data like writing essays and, and having chats and so forth. So that, that was one thing we were exploring here. And I think uh, the answer was affirmative. We can uh, get an agent to basically... It, it, use a set of tools that we give it. In this case, the browsing commands like searching, scrolling, clicking on links. The second uh, theme of this paper was around truthfulness. I mean, a big issue with uh, with uh, language models is, I mean, they're not very reliable at giving you true information. They know a vastly superhuman amount, but if you prompt them in the wrong way, they'll just output lots of plausible sounding nonsense. So how, how to fix that is a big research question or one of the one of the biggest research questions in the world of uh, language models. I think it's going to be challenging to fully fix it, but I think a big part of the story uh, involves retrieval and having models write answers that contain citations, citations to tri- trusted sources. So a person who's checking over the answer doesn't have to go and try to figure out where the model might have gotten this idea. They can, they can go and directly look at the source and see if it supports uh, the AI's statement. With WebGBT, we just wanted to see uh, if we do um, give the language model a really flexible interface to the web, can we have it answer hard questions truthfully uh, using, like, with the help of all these citations? And uh, it's actually really non-trivial because if you look at the um, the data set we use, the Reddit uh, explain it like I'm five, the, the questions are really varied. Like some of them are about science, history, current events. Like our raters didn't necessarily know anything about these topics. But still, they had to judge the answers, written detailed answers. So it would have been really hard to do it without the supporting uh, citations. So we kind of we kind of validated that we we could uh, get good feedback in a hard domain like this with the help of uh, citations. Can you talk about uh, where the idea for WebGPT came from? Is that an idea you've you've had kicking around for a while, or was it something that came up recently before the paper? How did that uh, How did that play out? Some of the ideas had been floating around, like we thought that. Uh, we actually had a project at OpenAI uh, very early on uh, world called World of Bits. We were looking at uh, controlling web browsers or doing tasks that involved tasks on the internet with a web browser. Um, but it was way too early at the time. So we kind of abandoned it for, for a few years. Uh, actually, we were trying to back then we were trying to do it with full visual input. So we thought, yeah, we could um, give some instructions to the agent, like go and figure out, uh, figure out the um, address of this uh 
building or something, the um, the agent would go and uh, search the web or use Google Maps or whatever to figure out the answer. And we were trying to do this all in pixels. That obviously didn't work very well. But uh, now we have these uh, great language models uh, on that work on text data. We can also um, extract the text out of web pages to uh, get most of the information. Uh, we can't really interact with a lot of dynamic websites yeah, where, where there's a lot of JavaScript and images and so forth. But as long as it's just uh, browsing and reading text, uh, we're fine. So yeah, we had uh, good enough models and uh, that made it po- kind of feasible to revisit this idea of uh, of using the internet as a, an environment. Um, so I would say that was that was one of the sources of inf- inspiration. That long st- that long kind of thread about like using the internet as an environment. Another another motivation was just um, after we got uh, after we were playing started playing with GPT three, we noticed that it had all these uh, problems with uh, factual accuracy and the reliability of of the information it was giving us. So so that kind of motivated doing more research on uh, how to make language models more truthful. We were kind of brainstorming what to do there, and we went through some uh, some docs and eventually uh, decided that we wanted to try some question answering, like using the web, looking up knowledge on the web to help answer questions. So actually, the original version of the project used trivia questions. So there's, another, there's this well-known data set, Trivia QA, that has some basic trivia questions. So we first uh, um, worked a little bit on that data set, and... Uh, Tried to see if we could boost the model's accuracy by giving it um, web search, and um, yeah, that actually worked quite straight. That worked pretty easily. So then we decided to move on to long form question answering, and uh, so that gave us the that that was the project we ended up working on for a while. It seems like you use a few different data sets here and a number of different training methods. Um, I'll just mention the last behavior cloning, reward modeling. Uh, reinforcement learning and rejection sampling. So we were using a fairly standard methodology, um, which was actually adapted from previous work on um, RL from human preferences. So the the pipeline is you first train a model with supervised learning, where you uh, you have um, human demonstrators uh, show how to do the task, like show how to ma- map from observations to actions. Yeah, so that's the supervised learning or behavior cloning step. Then we uh, train a reward model or a preference model, it looks at um, two actions or two out trajectories and decides which one is better. In this case, uh, like in a, in a question answering setting, you're looking at two answers and deciding which answer is better. And, and we use that to train a reward model that assigns higher score to the good answers than the bad ones. Then you do reinforcement learning against that reward function. And of course, you can iterate these last two steps. After you do a little RL, now you're, you've sort of exploited some of the flaws of the reward model, like or some of the noise in the reward model. And it's not necessarily accurate on your new distribution of data. You recollect more pairs of samples and refit this uh, preference model, and then you do another another iteration of RL. So that's um, like that's the whole RL from human feedback pipeline. And uh, there's this other idea called uh, rejection sampling or best event sampling. And in general, you can do other kinds of search too, where uh, instead of doing RL once you have your reward model, you can just search against that reward model. So you can take a bunch of, collect a bunch of samples and uh, re-rank them with the reward model and take take the best one as your action. Kind of like MPC? Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it kind of de- depends exactly what setting you're in, uh, what you can do. If you're in a setting where um, where there's some environment you're interacting with, then you would have to simulate your, uh, you, you would have to simulate the dynamics of your environment. Which, uh, yeah, so that would look kind of like MPC. In our case, we were um, 
the only thing we had to learn a model of was uh, the uh, human preference. So like we're, it's a question answering setting. So it's really like a contextual bandit problem. So it's kind of straightforward to take a bunch of sample, a bunch of actions where each action is a full answer and uh, re-rank them and, or search, search against the uh, search over answers. So in terms of the action space, um, was it the action space, just a list of commands or is it still generating tokens like a, a regular generative mode? Uh, we were generating tokens. We had um, two phases of like in each episode of, of the uh, RL task. So there was first a, uh, a browsing phase where, where the model goes and it issues searches and clicks on things and uh, quotes relevant um, information. Like if it sees something useful on the page, it'll, it'll quote it using this quote command. Um, and then once it's uh, browsed, it's done browsing, it'll issue another command called end browsing. Uh, and it'll write its answer. That's also expressed in tokens. But really, we rolled this all into one big RL task where your episode involves browsing and writing out the answer, and it's all one big RL episode. Did you think this was going to work well, or were you kind of surprised? At the very beginning of the project, uh, we didn't know if it was going to work or not. We uh, like After we did the initial experiments with um, Trivia QA, which actually didn't take that long to uh, get running, then it became pretty, cl- it, it became pretty clear that it, it would work, uh, that the browsing part worked at least. And we already know that uh, we can get these models to write um, pretty good long-form text uh, with a bunch of, uh, if you give them a bunch of snippets of uh, text that they, they can cite. So I noticed the the raider the human raider's task was was quite complicated. It was, it was a long guide, and there was many types of feedback that they were giving. But in the end, the paper said that only the final rating was used. So I was just curious if you had any comment about that. Like, why do you think maybe the model couldn't use that extra feedback, or is it maybe just too much or not enough samples? Yeah, that's uh, been one frustrating uh, finding so far in in this in that project, and also some other projects. We've had the same finding that. Uh, you have your raters uh, go through this uh, long process for each uh, for each comparison they do, where they're comparing a, a pair of answers, and then you only use one bit of inf- information from the whole uh, from this whole process, um, which might have taken like half an hour. It seems like it would be better if we uh, if we were able to extract more information, more about the process they went through. Um, in arriving at the answer. So we did collect all sorts of other information, like we had them provide ratings along several different axes, like coherence and factual um, accuracy and so forth. But in the end, uh, uh, we didn't really get much of a boost out of um, using any of this this other information. So I'd say um, it seems like there's uh, it should be possible to do better. Uh, but unfortunately, this methodology, which seems kind of dumb uh, so far, is hard to beat. And uh, people have uh, tried various other ideas for um, like how to use human feedback. Instead of you getting these preference scores, there are various other things you can do. Like you can have them write critiques and edit or maybe edit the uh, responses. Yeah, I think some of these things are are also uh, promising. But uh, yeah, this methodology of collecting preference data um, works well. Yeah, I, I think it's it's still an open area of research. Oh, yeah. Regarding um, the really long instructions. Yeah, I think for any of these tasks, there is a lot of subtlety in um, how to do the task properly. And uh, so we ended up adding more and more um, details of like, Mm -hmm. what do you do in this situation? What do you do in that situation? I think it's starting to get pretty unwieldy uh, with these really long instruction manuals. So there are some uh, promising ideas for how to address this. Like uh, there's a paper uh, from DeepMind recently, Sparrow, that used basically broke down the task and they trained uh, 
they basically had people look at one aspect of the uh, one aspect of the response at a time, and and then they had a, a way of combining these uh, different rule specific. They would train a bunch of rule specific reward models and then combine them at the end. Yeah, I think there's some other interesting ideas for how to how to make this process better. So I gather that from your answer about WebGPT and the whole idea of WebGPT is that you want the the language model to have access to external knowledge. But I wonder where you think the line should really be in terms of what a language model should know and what the language model should look up and maybe what the language model should not know or not purport to know. Do you have opinions about that? Yeah, let's see. Like some people are, are advocating for very small language models that have like no external knowledge aside from language. I guess would be the extreme position. And then other I think other people have talked about language models that just know everything yeah. as opposed to having an external knowledge source. There's some interesting questions there. So I think it is a little hard to separate knowledge, factual knowledge from uh, understanding. So as humans, we get by of like not memorizing all sorts of uh, facts and just knowing that we can uh, look them up if needed. For working on a specific domain, it is useful to... Uh, like have a lot of facts um, internalized uh, so that you can recall them very quickly and uh, kind of combine them combine them in your head. So I wouldn't take an extreme position on either side. I would say I think retrieval is going to going to be really useful, um, just at the very least for uh, current events. But but also um, I don't think uh, we want to try to pack all human knowledge um, into the weights of a neural net. On the other hand, I think people have had a lot of luck just. Uh, uh, scaling up models and uh, like as they soak soak up more factual knowledge, they also uh, get better at reasoning and other things. And I think I haven't seen any uh, demonstrations of uh, of tiny models that uh, just do lots of retrieval and save all their weights for reasoning. Yeah, I, I just haven't seen uh, any evidence of this, or that, or I haven't seen any successful attempts at uh, making this. Let's move on to training language models to follow instructions with human feedback. That was Uyang et al. And that was 2022 with yourself as a co-author. Can you tell us the main idea with this paper? This is the Instruct GPT paper. What, what is Instruct GPT and what, what's going on here? Instruct GPT is a language model that's uh, fine-tuned to follow instructions. And it's, in fact, the one that uh, you can play with if you go to um, the OpenAI website. Um, you get a big text box and you can write some text and then press the button to uh, generate a completion. So the idea here was, I mean, language models are uh, pretty useful and you can uh, sometimes get them to do what you want by prompting them just right. This um, idea of few shot prompting has been become pretty popular where you give a few examples like uh, a few question answer examples. And then if you ask another question, it'll hopefully provide an answer in the same style. So the idea, yeah, so if you, you can get uh, language models to do great things with prompting, but prompting is, is itself an art and it's tricky to get right. And it's also kind of not necessarily getting the best possible uh, performance out of the model. If you just take a raw language model and you try to you try to talk to it like you ask it a question, it probably it doesn't know that it should actually answer that question as well as possible. It uh, for all it knows, you want it to give a joke answer or a riddle or something. Yeah. So the idea of Instruct GPT was uh, let's make a kind of small change to our language models so that they're much easier to use. In particular, we're going to train them to uh, if you have a if you have a t um, piece of text where there's an instruction, the uh, model will try to follow that instruction uh, to the best of its abilities. And, and pretty much anything can be an instruction. Like you can have a the instruction can be to continue a chat, or it can be to um, like summarize, like summarize this text, or uh, give me a list of uh, 
of names for my uh, company that sells widgets. Um, yeah, instructions can be anything, and that makes um, that makes this kind of model very powerful. So, so that was kind of that's the idea of an instruction following model. It's like a model that can do anything that you specify with an instruction. And by the way, I wasn't a core contributor to this work. I was uh, more involved uh, with um, like getting the RL infrastructure and some of the RL uh, training details, uh, like helping out with that that stuff. But anyway, yeah, what we did in this project was we we ran this uh, this whole methodology that I just described of uh, RL from human pre- preferences in this instruction following setting. So we we did supervised fine tuning, uh, collected preference data, trained a reward model, and then did RL against that reward model. And uh, one interesting detail is actually uh, whereas the original initial data was just collected um, using um, contractors, at a certain point we had the uh, the API and uh, it's got this, uh, I mean, we have this uh, playground um, on the website where this is where you, the, the big text box where you can uh, use the model. So we, we took prompts that people, that users had put into the, into the playground and used those for training, uh, like both to collect uh, preference data and to do RL. So, and, and this is uh, like, this is disclosed to users uh, pretty um prominently like when when people are using the playground uh, you get notified that your prompts might be used for further training and we're also careful to uh, train in such a way that we don't memorize any information that was in uh, in the prompts like uh, it, and it explicit like we have a pretty like elaborate process for making sure there's no uh, like private information being uh, leaked into the model but anyway yeah that's that's basically the uh, experimental setup and uh, the result was that it works uh, like this methodology works quite well, and you get a model that's uh, vastly preferred to the base model on this uh, distribution of, of realistic prompts that people are giving the model, uh, often which contain instructions. So the raw, like the, the raw language models, uh, generally do a really bad job following instructions. Uh, but this uh, um, RL trained uh, instruction following model is is a lot better, and it's uh, something like um, if you just calculate uh, how much better, it's something like. It's as good as a model that's a hundred times bigger. That's a lot. Yeah, you wanted the model to be truthful. Is that is that one of the criteria you wanted? Uh, yeah, truthfulness was one of the criteria. Th- that seems amazing to me. That truthfulness is something that I could learn by example. Like, does that mean that truthfulness is somehow represented inside the network, or because there's no external way uh, for the model to confirm whether something is true or false? So how how might it know what is what is true without any external uh, reference? I think to some extent, um, there is some internal representation of truthfulness. So I would say like one way to think about what language models do is they're uh, trained to imitate the whole internet. And the internet is written by lots of different people and has lots of different types of content from fiction to uh, nonfiction to like, uh, like technical, like detailed technical literature to like jokes and like forum posts, whatever. Um, so the model is basically an ensemble of all of these people who wrote stuff on the internet, uh, the, the, the raw uh, pre-trained model. When you feed it a, um, a prompt, what it's doing internally has to be something like figuring out who wrote the fir- wrote this prompt and then trying to continue in that style. So if it thinks it's reading, um, just reading something on the uh, uh, Wall Street Bets uh, Reddit, <laughs> it's going to continue on that style. Uh, but if it thinks it's in the New York Times, uh, it's going to write in a very different way. There, so effectively, the the, mo- the model must be sto- uh, like calculating somewhere, like what style is this, or what ensemble? What's the uh, like narrower ensemble of styles that I'm trying to imitate now? Mm-hmm. 
at the very least, when you do some kind of, when you do training, like either supervised fine tuning or are all from human feedback, you can at least like narrow down the set of styles the model is producing uh, and try to imitate like the best or, or the best uh, person in the training set or the best style in the training set. And obviously best will differ a lot. So what we'll end up with will depend on our instructions. So if we, if we tell, uh, I, don't, I don't know, we'll, we'll end up with something that has kind of safe, uh, like um, not too, uh, not too controversial, but a bit uh, corporate, uh, we'll end up with something like that, uh, depending on what our instructions are. So at the very least, uh, like we can kind of narrow in on one style instead of having the whole uh, distribution of styles on the internet. I think probably there's more to it than that. Like we're not just uh, learning about style, but the model probably is uh, like internally trying to determine if things are, if statements are true or not, like if the prompt contains incorrect information, because that probably would be useful for determining a likely completion. I'm just talking about the raw pre-trained model. So I think, yeah, I think it, it, just the objective of predicting next tokens uh, probably gives you a lot it forces the model to uh, like to determine if things are true or not. Um, I think for RL fine tuning, there's a lot more potential for the model to to actually uh, like try to output something truthful as opposed to trying to imitate a certain style. Though it, it's hard to, um, I guess it would be hard to uh, like determine if that's what the model is actually trying to do. So it's almost like the the prompt is is guiding the model. It's like what corner of the internet do we want to do we want to imitate here, and maybe we want to. Instruct GPT wants to to focus more on the most more truthful corners of the internet. Something similar to that. Uh, yeah, I would hope so. At least I think that's a pretty good, though maybe a little simplistic picture of what's going on. At the very least, we should be able to imitate the most truthful corner of the internet. So, can you talk about uh, generalization and how how does this type of model perform out of distribution? Like, I guess if it seems questions that are a bit different than what it was trained on, um, and what happens if we get a little bit away from the training data uh, with the reward models? I mean, language models in general generalize surprisingly well, and I would say overall, like uh, these pre-trained models that are trained on super diverse data sets from the internet, they tend to generalize quite well. Um, or surprisingly well, at least it's surprising to um, those of us who were around for uh, early the earlier days of machine learning when uh, everything was trained from scratch and very fragile. For example, if you ask uh, if you provide an instruction in some other language, uh, even a even a fairly rare language, it'll often do a decent job following the instruction, even if there's zero data in the whole like instruction following data training process uh, that's in that language. And that's just a carryover from uh, the pre-training. So I think generalization, yeah, I think language models generalize quite well. So you asked about reward models. I think one of the tricky pieces about uh, RL from human feedback is how, so, so you have this reward model and you're actually training against it, meaning you're training your policy to have high reward. And it's going to exploit the errors in the reward model. So it's going to eventually find adversarial examples to the reward model. This is worse than kind of normal out of distribution behavior. It's like uh, targeted out of distribution examples. So so there are definitely some challenges around uh, getting reward models to generalize well or generalize as far as possible from the uh, training set. Can these types of agents tell us when they don't know something or is that a hard problem? I'd say sort of. If you ask a question that's kind of in the core of uh, the model's knowledge, it, it will know know the answer and it'll know that it knows. By the way, I'm talking about models like the for the instruct model. If you ask it about something that's uh, like very simple at at the core of its uh, knowledge, it'll know. If you 
there's certain things that it knows that it doesn't know, um, like uh, current events where it's it's been trained to um, know that it doesn't know certain things in real time. But uh, if you ask it about something that's kind of on the edge of its knowledge, it's uh, it's going to have a hard time. Uh, it's it's necessarily going to be inaccurate. I mean, there have been a couple papers um, about this question. So there is a uh, paper from Anthropic re- uh, recently called Language Models uh, Mostly Know What They Know. And uh, there is also a paper uh, from FHI and OpenAI uh, called uh, uh, Getting Language Models to Express Their Uncertainty in Words. Uh, these language uh, models, as well as a lot of other models in machine learning, are trained to maximize likelihood, uh, so maximize log prob of data. You're already training them to always predict a distribution of outputs. So for language models, uh, uh, given a prefix, it's uh, predicting a distribution over the next token. These uh, predictions for the next token like generally are uh, pretty well calibrated. With 80%. If it puts 80% probability on something, uh, and you look at all the times when it puts 80%, probability on something like it's right 80% of the time. Uh, like that's just a result of the training objective. The training object- objective like strongly incentivizes the model to be calibrated, meaning it has a reasonable estimate of it, its uncertainty. Mm-hmm. So at the single token level, uh, models definitely are calibrated. The question is whether they're calibrated on whether this uh, calibration extends to um, settings where they are generating uh, multi-token outputs or whether they can like judge the correctness of some multi-token statement. So I, I would say since uh, models are calibrated at the single token level, uh, they I think they, they definitely have the information to be calibrated in these other uh, settings. So that's why I think the, the problem of uh, models um, knowing what they know um, isn't actually that hard, or at least getting a model to uh, express its uncertainty pretty much as well as a human does uh, doesn't feel like a insurmountable problem. But there are some practical difficulties to getting getting there. People use the phrase AI alignment in different ways. Um, can you talk about how you see alignment in your work uh, on RL from human feedback? I think of alignment mostly as the problem of getting the model to uh, to try to do the right thing. So we can kind of make a distinction between uh, what the model is uh, capable of doing. Like if you just take a raw language model and you uh, ask it a question, uh, like I said before, it doesn't know that you actually want it to give the correct answer as opposed to uh, it might think someone uh, who's not very knowledgeable is answering. By doing some extra training, we can get the model to actually try to do the right thing. And uh, so I would say that that's uh, the main goal of alignment. So there was an OpenAI blog post recently that talked about the sequence um, in in alignment. One was training AI systems using human feedback. Two, training AI systems to assist human evaluation. And three, training AI systems to do alignment research. So is your current work um, mostly about this first item? And and when and how do you see us getting to these other stages? I'm doing some work now on uh, number two training AI systems to assist human feedback. I think that's that's sort of becomes increasingly necessary as you start trying to uh, get the systems to solve harder and harder problems. When you have models that are kind of very below human level or maybe at human level at a certain task, uh, it's uh, pretty straightforward to supervise them. Um, but uh, once they're doing things that are very hard or do th- doing things that require a lot of diverse technical knowledge, uh, it becomes um, pretty hard to provide a useful supervision signal. So so we have to start doing things like one model uh, writes an answer to, to a question, and then another model um, provides uh, a critique of that answer, points out some flaws, and then the human uh, only has to judge the, uh, the first answer, answer after 
looking at the critique, meaning basically the critique helps the human assess the answer. So I think like that kind of uh, idea is starting to become pretty relevant. Uh, colleagues and I are exploring that kind of idea now. As for assisting alignment research, there's some other work at OpenAI that's starting to explore this. It's also, uh, that's sort of the furthest down the road. So I saw Stuart Russell was on your PhD committee, and I really enjoyed his book, Human Compatible. Uh, I wonder if you share the idea mentioned in the book that uh, the standard RL framing with this fixed reward signal uh, is problematic and that agents, powerful agents should try to do what we want and maintain some uncertainty about what it is we want and that agents uh, that are too certain will be will be problematic. What, do you have any thoughts on that idea? I um, Yeah, I totally agree with, with that idea. Um, so I think first it's really hard to write down a uh, – a simple reward function that actually captures what we want or what any any particular person wants. Uh, I can say I want a little more of this or a little more of that, but uh, you wouldn't want to take that to the extreme. If we build agents that try to uh, cater to our to our wishes, uh, we should make sure they're uh, like they have um, a lot of they have uncertainty about what we want or what we value, and uh, that that'll also cause them to be a little more cautious and uh, say not disturb anything that might be important to us. So, um, yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, like, uh, Stuart Russell gave a very good, uh, like problem definition of what we want, uh, AI to do. Like we want it to basically, we, we want to jointly, uh, like play this game where AI is, the AI is trying to figure out what we want and then trying to do that, but simultaneously maintaining some uncertainty about what we want. I would say if you you start to look at how to get that in practice, it actually looks quite a bit like the kind of RL from human feedback uh, that we're working on at OpenAI and others are working on at other places. I think, uh, yeah, I think I, I, I see what we're doing as a uh, practical implementation of getting towards this behavior that Russell described. Do you think of uh, AGI as an abstract goal or we're, are we going to see a model come out one day and people are going to say, oh, that's the first AGI model? Like, what does it have to do for people to say that? Um, I think people will say that uh, many times, um, then realize that it doesn't quite do everything that you want. I think we're going to have a lot of, um, like a long series of models that are uh, that are superhuman at most things or at a certain class of things, uh, but they also have some uh, failure modes and weaknesses. I Like, I expect us to, like, see uh, multiple models that are pr- proclaimed as AGI and then only after only after interacting with it a while do you realize it's not quite uh, it's not not quite there. What, what would you say is the relationship between AGI and RL and AGI and these large language models? How do those concepts fit together? I would say that RL is uh, a useful um, like component of training AGI or an almost essential component. The thing RL lets you do is uh, it lets you optimize any objective um, for the agents any objective. Uh, that is uh, a function of the agent's behavior. So with pre-training, uh, like what we um, do for language models, you're, we're kind of choosing an objective that, that lets us uh, do something with all the training data we have, which is all this internet text. So we choose this uh, maximum likelihood objective, which is basically the only, or not the only thing, but it's like a sensible way to absorb all this knowledge. But then if we really uh, want to opt optimize the agent's behavior for a specific objective, RL is kind of the only uh, the only framework that lets you do that. Okay, John, we have a few uh, questions from the audience, and I'm just going to pick the two that have the highest score uh, mm-hmm. in terms of Twitter likes. So the first is from uh, Eric Chang, VP of AI at, at Halodi Robotics. He asked, 
RL distributions are non-stationary, making it hard to reason about PPO losses, and how that relates to return or generalization. Are there any intermediate plots and visualizations you like to generate to debug or incrementally build up a large-scale RL system? Yeah, there are definitely some uh, some stats that I look at. Uh, so, so I will be I'll uh, talk about this in the nuts and bolts uh, revamp, uh, like reboot later this year. But uh, I'd say um, things like looking at the uh, explained variance of the value function and looking at the uh, like how many samples are getting clipped in PPO and what the KL between the uh, what, what the KL divergence is between the policy before and after the update is. Yeah, things like that. And then Ethan Calabero from uh, Mila asks, what is your median estimate for the arrival date of AGI? I think uh, not too far away, but I, uh, like I said, I expect there to be a lot of false starts. I would say I ex- expect uh, like, like AI to be able to do better, uh, a better job than humans at most jobs that humans do now in uh, five years or so. That's not all jobs, but most jobs. For a while, we're going to discover things that AI isn't very good at and that where we want to keep humans in control. So I think there will be some kind of gra- gradual process over the next 10 or 15 years. I've been curious about this. I, I see that some RL work is patented, um, but I could not find a TRPO or PPO in... Uh, I could not find patents on these. Are, th- are those uh, protected, uh, patent protected at all? Or how do you, th- how do you think of um, intellectual property uh, protection for that kind of work? I haven't uh, ever looked looked into patenting anything, and OpenAI uh, hasn't either, as far as I know. I think the trend over time has been for people to take uh, patents in machine, like of machine learning algorithms, less seriously. There's this algorithm in computer vision called SIFT, which is like this uh, key point detector, and uh, this was uh, patented. I think the uh, the guy who patented it, um, his, he probably made his university some money from the patent, but in the end, uh, all all it did was uh caused people a lot of annoyance because uh like the uh people people had to come up with alternative algorithms that uh like had a different acronym and uh weren't patented so like the OpenCV uh open source library uh would have uh like had to be careful about putting this uh algorithm in their library because of the patent risks um so i i think um uh like these patents aren't the patent rights aren't exercised that much and i think uh big companies uh, like Google will patent a lot of stuff for defensive reasons. Uh, so if they get in some big legal dispute with another company, it, it, it can be used as like one of the bargaining chips. But uh, I think I don't think anyone's going to uh, like get uh, sued for royalties uh, for not, yeah for not providing royalties uh, for the use of some algorithm. Okay, and then there's been a, a, a ton of work in RL, of course, since you first published um, TRPO and PPO. But from your point of view. If you had to pick a few highlights in terms of a few important milestones in in RL algorithms since PPO came out, um, and by the way, it's amazing that in 2022 we're still using PPO. Um, I think quite similar to, to to its original form. Is that right? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So, so what would you say are the are the biggest um, highlights for you uh, in terms of RL algorithms since since you did PPO? Yeah, there's definitely been some interesting stuff. So I think. Um, um, like a little after PPO, there was uh, TD3 and SAC, and uh, those are uh, seem like pretty solid uh, value-based methods. That was one development that was interesting. Um, I think, uh, like, yeah, I thought uh, Mu Zero and its um, and its like elaborations were also uh, like Efficient Zero uh, were also pretty impressive. Um, that you can get that good sample efficiency. 
both of the things I just mentioned were kind of, um, well, I don't want to say mostly on toy tasks or benchmarks, uh, because, uh, yeah, I'm sure people are doing some real things with these algorithms. Yeah. So I think that's, that stuff was interesting. I think, um, like the whole, uh, um, recent interest and surge of interest in, uh, offline RL was also notable. I would say the, like the stuff we're doing with RL from human feedback is a kind of offline RL, um, because we're like, we have a fixed data set, um, and, uh, we have a fixed reward modeling data set and we're training against that. This is like offline RL, but you're doing it in a different way. You're using an on policy algorithm with a reward model as opposed to a more, maybe a more typical way to do offline RL would be use off policy algorithm. Would that work here or, or would that not work here? What we're doing here is kind of like model based RL because, uh, so the reward model is like a model of the, uh, like the unknown part of the system. So, uh, like the unknown part of the system here is the, uh, is the human rater or yeah, the, the human, it's not the, uh, outputting appending to your list of tokens. Um, so this is kind of like the work that's done, like takes a dynamics model of the environment and does some kind of just runs a policy grading algorithm against it. So it's not like, so the idea of running an online algorithm, uh, on against the model, that's kind of a well-established idea. Um, though I would say the papers that previously did this, uh, they were in a pretty different regime. We're in this regime of doing fairly small updates to the policy because we have this these awesome pre-trained models and uh, we don't need to actually uh, change them that much. So yeah, we use these uh, online algorithms. I'd say part of the reason why we can get away with using a, um, just an, uh, like an online algorithm is because uh, we've been just looking at a, band, a contextual banded problem. Yeah, because we, we only uh, have like one time step. Like you get a a query and you output a response and then that response gets a reward. Um, so if we had a, like a multi-step process, uh, such as a conversation where, uh, you can't, uh, assign a reward until the very end of the conversation and, and or you had some, uh, I don't know, some interaction with like some, uh, real world system that's hard to simulate. You wouldn't, uh, then it wouldn't be as straightforward to, you wouldn't be able to use exact, exactly the same methodology. You would probably have to use a. Uh, you would have to uh, probably train a Q function or or something like that. Um, if you want to, if you want your method to be sample efficient, you would probably have to do something slightly different. I think we'll we'll have to uh, we'll have to start exploring this at some point soon. But uh, so far, we haven't. Uh, at least uh, I haven't uh, seen any cases in um, like in the domain I'm looking at that require this. Uh, but I expect it to. Uh, to be relevant at some point. So we had Arvind Srinivas talking about Decision Transformer on the show recently. Uh, that was a great episode. And I see that you were also a co-author on the, the 2016 RL Squared paper. So I want to ask you about your thoughts about Meta RL. Uh, Arvind had some interesting things to say about maybe the idea that a transformer could kind of supersede the need for an RL algorithm altogether. What do you expect from Meta RL? Uh, do you expect we'll, we'll still be using human-authored RL algorithms in the future? Yeah, that's a pretty bold statement that we don't need. We won't need any RL algorithms anymore. Yeah, since the RL squared paper, um, people have been talking less about meta learning, uh, as, as far as I can tell. Um, actually, because of um, sequence modeling has gotten so good, like transformer uh, sequence models, uh, that uh, it's kind of clear that meta learning is just a special case of learning. Like it's it's just uh, it's just uh, like a certain kind of long context learning, learning involving long episodes and. Uh, Maybe it shouldn't be treated that differently or or addressed with special algorithms. 
I would say, yeah, the ideas like decision transformer are pretty interesting where you try to reduce RL to supervised learning. It's still not like certain exactly how these uh, compare in performance to RL. Like people have started to uh, analyze that empirically and theoretically. And I would say in practice, uh, sometimes sometimes it's better, sometimes it's worse. Um, in my experience, like it's been worse on the problems that I've, that I've, my colleagues and I have, where we've tested it. But um, yeah, it's definitely an interesting direction. Dr. John Schulman, thank you so much for sharing your time and your insight with the Talk RL audience today. Thanks so much. Thank you. 